Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your co-host Kyle Tibbetts, joined by my fellow co-host Alex Kahn. For episode number four, we sat down with Trey Stevens. Trey is a venture capitalist at Founders Fund with partners like Peter Thiel, Brian Singerman, Cyan Bannister, and Keith Raboy, where he invests across sectors with a particular interest in startups operating in the government space. He's also the co-founder and executive chairman of Anderl Industries with Palmer Lucky, who founded and sold Oculus to Facebook in 2014. Anderl is a defense technology company focused on developing autonomous systems for the U.S. military and is by far one of the most interesting and for some controversial new startups in the last two years. In our conversation, Trey described Anderl as a real-life Stark Industries from Iron Man. Previously, Trey was an early employee at Palantir, where he led teams focused on growth in the intelligence defense space, as well as international expansion, helping large organizations solve their hardest data problems. Prior to Palantir, Trey worked as a computational linguist within the United States intelligence community. He began his career working in the office of then-Congressman Rob Portman and in the Office of Political Affairs at the Embassy of Afghanistan in Washington, D.C. Trey is publishing a paper on just war theory in the age of technology later this month, and you can follow him on Twitter at Trey Stevens. Our conversation with Trey was a wide-ranging and illuminating one. We hope you enjoy the episode. Trey, thanks for making time to join us on the Paradox Podcast. Thank you for having me. And I guess to start things off, I'll start with an easy question. I'm joking. But asking a modified version of the now famous Peter Thiel interview question of, What's something you believe that most people don't? I get asked this question a lot, and I would say that the hardest part about answering it is that I have too many answers to the question. I think we're slated to talk about some pretty heavy topics today, so maybe it's best to start off with a more chippy version of an answer to the question, uh, which is that I think what we're seeing with the NBA and the decisions that they've been making with regards to basically money sources in China is common across all of the professional sports. Uh, And the NFL is no less biased towards some of the same money-making decisions. And so I think if you look at the top franchises in the NFL, like the Patriots, the Cowboys, from a fan-based perspective, the Steelers, um, they all have like these different ways that they're massively corrupt. And the Patriots are kind of being figured out for being kind of coaching cheaters uh, for getting opponents playbooks and doing subtle things with the officiating. Um, 
I think the the thing that is deeply unpopular that people don't talk about is that I think the Steelers might actually be the most corrupt of all of the NFL franchises, but they do it through dirty play. So if you go and you look at like the record uh, of injuries and games and officiating challenges and things like that, you'll you see like this long history of Mike Tomlin and the Steelers just being like a dirty, dirty organization. Um, but nobody talks about it because they have the third largest fan base in the NFL. Mm. Um, so rather than sending all the heat to the Patriots, I'd like to send a little shade towards the Steelers. <laughs> Diversify the heat. That's if you right. Will. Diversify the heat to the Steelers. So it's almost like there's different flavors of professional sports corruption. And maybe the corruption for the Houston Rockets is that they are uh, disproportionately beholden to the Chinese government and that fan base, which is why they're sort of all kowtowing and throwing their GM under the bus. Maybe that's like a different flavor of corruption that's a little more internationalized than a lot of what we see probably in the NFL, which is slightly less internationalized as a sport. Do you kind of, do you think of it that way? Totally. And I think the kind of crux of my argument is that these things don't really matter with the smaller regional fan base teams. So like, you know, had it been the Orlando magic, I'm not sure it would have had the same impact because of the larger fan base, the better chances of winning a championship, the tie to Yao Ming and everything like that. Whereas in the NFL, you never hear anything about the Jacksonville Jaguars. You know, it's just like it's not even a topic of conversation. And I think it's all about money. The whole mm-hmm. the whole thing is just about well, money. Trey Parker and Matt Stone, when they gave their official apology to the to the Chinese government, I think they articulated it well. I'm paraphrasing, but it was something like we too love money more than freedom or something like that. Exactly. I mean, it kind yes. of just nailed like the, the, the truth that no one wants to speak, but everyone sort of knows deep down is is true on some level. Right. And as a as a small market fan from Cincinnati, I can say that, you know, I'm both glad that we aren't subject to that same level of criticism and also very sad because it means that we basically will never win anything. Right. <laughs> Switching gears a little bit, before joining Palantir as an early employee, you actually began your career working on the kind of government side of things. You worked for Congressman Rob Portman from Ohio, worked at our embassy in Afghanistan. Can you talk about first maybe the difference between working in sort of the public and the private sectors and maybe how you made that transition from that sphere and that world over to the world of you know entrepreneurship and, and tech in Silicon Valley? Sure. To be honest, it was entirely kind of just opportunistic luck in many cases. So I can go back and talk about that. But I think the first thing that's worth pointing out is that I actually don't think there's that big of a difference necessarily between the public and the private sector. I think it's really about how your skill sets and passions apply to the thing that you're working on. And so, for example, if you were a rocket scientist during the Gemini and Apollo programs working for NASA, that was a public sector job. But that was literally the best place in the world to apply your skill set. You know, you couldn't say the same for like being a politician in Silicon Valley. There's just something deeply non-aspirational about that. Um, The same way if you're like a really talented AI engineer, like the chances that you would rather work at Google optimizing ads than working in the basement of a windowless building on a, you know, dubious mission in Washington, D.C. It's just like these are not aspirational jobs. And so I think that the key is finding how you can get the people that are the most passionate about a thing to work on it in the most aspirational way. Yeah, it's interesting because uh, I originally was a political science major, went to UC Berkeley, and I took some time off to work at the White House as an intern uh, in 2006. And I liked it. And I think at that point, I didn't really know whether I wanted to move into maybe campaign related political work or maybe kind of the private sector. 
And even though I really enjoyed my time there, I think it really solidified for me that good portions of government, not all portions of government, are not places where things are created. It's mostly a destructive force where things go to get bureaucratized or get caught up in red tape. And so for me, that was kind of a pivotal moment where I'm like, yeah, I'm a political science major, but I kind of had this realization that if I wanted to create and build, I had to pivot in a different direction. So for me, that was kind of a light bulb moment. But I agree with you that it's not so clear cut because if you wanted to work on Uh, the Apollo space program, being in government was actually the place to be innovative, which is an interesting point. Or if you want to work on federal policy, like, yeah, you you have to go and work on Capitol Hill. And there are some really talented people doing those things. But I think that the problem is, is that that is the aspirational core. And so what ends up happening is that every problem looks like a policy problem, because the people that are the most ambitious, the most talented, spend all of their time trying to convert all of the problems of the federal government into their skill set. And so we we tend to like over policy reform things that aren't policy problems. They're, you know, technology problems or talent problems or, you know, culture problems or things that are not solvable by policy. So I think that's a really good lead into talking about Anderol, which is working with the federal government is one of the most innovative, probably exciting, possibly controversial uh, startups in the defense tech space for people out there who may not be familiar. Uh, What was uh, the initial idea? How did the founding of that kind of come about? Yeah. When I first joined Founders Fund, and I guess this goes back to the earlier question, uh, I had gone from the intelligence community to working for Palantir back in 2007, 2008, and kind of accidentally fell into venture capital via a longstanding relationship with Peter Thiel, who is one of my partners here at Founders Fund. And when I first got here, I literally knew nothing about venture capital. Like I didn't know what a term sheet was. I didn't know like what a cap table was. I had no idea what a convertible note was. I mean, it was, it was messy. And so I was kind of drinking from the fire hose. Uh, and not knowing anything about that space, I became very interested in exploring the space that I did know inside of this, uh, which was defense tech. So Founders Fund is a large investor in Palantir and in SpaceX. And I thought, wow, if I could just focus some time and energy on finding the next Palantir or SpaceX, maybe that would be like a good entree into smoothing the transition. And so I started building a spreadsheet, pulled down everyone that was openly bidding on DoD contracts went back, ran that against a venture capital database to figure out who of that group had raised uh, capital from VCs and started meeting with as many companies as I could. We ended up making one uh, pretty good investment in a company called KDM that has since been renamed Expanse that has performed really well. But aside from that, we just did nothing. And we didn't do nothing because you know, we were getting squeezed out or there was too much competition. It was just that there was nothing to invest in. <laughs> uh, and so in 20, uh, 2016 or thereabouts, I started talking to a couple of my friends, Palmer Lucky, uh, who was the founder of Oculus, the virtual reality company. We were the first institutional investor in Oculus here at Founders Fund. Um, Brian Schimpf, who ran engineering at Palantir, and Matt Grimm, who was running commercial at, at Palantir. Uh, and Joe Chen, who worked early on with Palmer at Oculus, and had been kind of exploring this idea of, you know, we understand what the gaps are in defense. Could we just build a company that fills those gaps? And I think that the vision for what that looked like was something like Stark Industries from Iron Man. It's like, we're not doing requirements programs, we're just building products, and then allow the government to make the decision 
whether or not they want to buy the product that we built. And so in 2017, early 2017, uh, the five of us came together and we were just like, look, if we don't do this now, uh, we're never going to do it. We should just pull the trigger. And we did and started the company in June of 2017. It seems like part of how Anduril flips the whole model on its head is defense contractors. And I'm not super familiar with that world, but they bid on contracts from the defense department and they're sort of incentivized to get as much money as possible. And maybe projects tend to go a little bit longer than possible. Whereas if you have your own capital, you're building your own set of products and you're selling those products to the government instead of bidding to work on products that the government is funding, it's a completely different incentive structure. And I imagine that there's an opportunity for taxpayers to save money, for the government to get um, better quality products at a lower cost. Is that a big underpinning of what you think can make Anduril different? Totally. Yeah. It's called a cost plus uh, contract, which basically means the government will reimburse the contractor for their costs, plus some fixed agreed upon margin that's somewhere usually between like seven and 12%. The problem with this is that you get more margin, uh, the higher the dollar amount goes for the cost. And so projects end up being massively over schedule. Um, they end up being broken and having to be fixed a number of times. And I, th I think it's easy to throw all of the blame on the contractor. You know, I think it's really fun to, you know, send pot shots over to Lockheed Martin, but the government holds some responsibility for this as well. You know, they have spent the last 30 years building the system that we're kind of trapped in now in cahoots with the primes, the primes being the Lockheed Martins, Northrop Grumman's, Raytheon's of the world. But you know, they also have been lobbying change orders constantly. You know, they change what they want over the course of a 10-year program. There doesn't seem to be a clear understanding of the fact that technology changes drastically over long periods of time. And so they have to modify these things over and over and over again. This is how you see programs like the F-35 just turn out to be a total disaster because it's started in, I think, 1994. I mean, it's wow. been you know, 25 years that we've been working on this program. And so you, you end up getting these weird perverse incentive structures. In everything I've read about Anduril, sometimes to my surprise, it seems like it's highly controversial for a private company to be, you know, kind of, I guess, in bed would be the way some people describe it with the government, particularly military and also uh, homeland security, especially along the border and so on. What do you say to people who question whether or not private companies should be assisting with maybe controversial wars, controversial uh, immigration policies, and so on? Well, I will say that I actually think that what we're doing is only unpopular in coastal metro areas. Defense is wildly bipartisan. And, you know, behind closed doors in Washington, D.C., you're not even going to get disagreement from like the far sides of either political party. You know, it has not gone unnoticed that there are times that the only appropriations bill that gets passed is the defense appropriations bill, mm -hmm. because it is the one thing that everyone kind of agrees on. I think in pockets of, you know, intellectual millennialism, uh, people tend to oversimplify their conviction around policy issues and make it into a debate that's not actually about the issue at all. It's about the emotions that surround the framing of something. And so, you know, I love getting into conversations about ethics with Andrew because it's complicated and I agree that it's complicated. And I think what we're doing is highly ethical and we have a reason for the projects that we select that we work on and things like that. But oftentimes you can't even get to the point of the ethical conversation because the emotions that are involved in uh, 
activism prevent you from even getting to that part of the conversation? It seems like some of what happens too is that people think in terms of short-term versus long-term cycles on how defense technology gets developed, how it gets deployed. And I think people maybe in the current political environment are thinking, oh, you're you're building things for one presidency or you're building things for one political party because that's what happens to be in power when really this is a multi-decade struggle to make sure the United States remains strong relative to Russia, relative to China, who are investing deeply in a lot of this technology that we're going to have to answer against. Although I would argue that the past, the present, and the future all matter quite a bit with these yeah. things, there is present context that it's important to think through. Notably, if, if we fall behind in critical technology areas, we lose the ability to define the standards and norms for how those technologies are used. If you go back and you look at nuclear arms treaties um, from the Cold War or just after the Cold War, you'll notice one important thing. They were both driven by and signed by the United States and the Soviet Union. So why does that matter? It matters because if you are a non-nuclear power holding nation state, you don't have any leverage to push the nuclear power wielding states to do the ethical thing. You have to rely on the people that have the advantage to make a decision that's best for global governance. And if we fall behind in the critical technologies that are being developed today in earnest by China, Russia, Iran, North Korea, we lose the seat at the negotiating table to define how those technologies are used. We're not going to stand up and say, China, we're so upset about the way that you're using facial recognition technologies to imprison Uyghurs in Western China. Uh, we demand that you stop. They're going to say, we have an advantage. Like, what? Right. <laughs> we're not ceding our advantage arbitrarily. It's kind of like being a small upset. market sports team versus a yes, big market sports exactly. team, right? The small market teams don't get to really play. You have no leverage. Game. You have no leverage. Yeah, totally. And, and so I think that Western values are incredibly important to me. And I'm not saying that, you know, yes, the West has a lot of problems. I think the development of ethical theory and uh, rule of law and freedom of speech, like all these things that have emerged from that tradition are incredibly important to me. And I think that if you care about those things, that it is incredibly important that we protect our lead so that we have the ability to project those values and set the, the norms for how those values are applied to new development in technology. It, it seems to me like the, the flip side of the argument that some folks make against Anderol is really maybe a duty in Silicon Valley, in tech generally, of patriotism of actually working with the government. I mean, if, if we go back, the oil barons, the railroad tycoons, the big bankers, they all made some contribution, whether that was charitable foundations, bailing out the federal government. I mean, there are numerous examples of those folks stepping in. And it seems like with just this massive brain trust here in Silicon Valley and in the tech space generally, if they just say, hey, the political climate or the social climate is such that we can maybe do better by just staying out of the fray, that's going to come at a huge cost to our country, probably in the, in the short term and certainly in the long term. Yeah, without a doubt. And I think this is one of the areas where the current political climate does make a big difference is that it encourages people to just say, well, we can just wait four years and maybe that four years turns into eight years. And I think that, you know, having voices that are pushing 
for ethical use and just war and things like that isn't something that can just sit and wait. And you can see some of that happening right now uh, on the Syria and Turkish border, where you know having some sort of deterrent capability would have been highly useful. And you know, sitting on your hands is not a very good strategy. So you mentioned obviously Peter Thiel is a partner of yours at Founders Fund. Can you tell the story of how he convinced you to switch into VC? You mentioned you're kind of, you don't come from this world. And then how do you actually think that coming from outside of the world of VC actually helps you with a different approach, a different perspective when you're evaluating different companies, either inside or outside of the, the defense space? I, I think the thing that makes Peter so interesting is that he's one of the few people I've ever known, if not the only person I've ever known that has truly original thought. So the three of us here in the room, and I'm assuming many of the people that listen to the podcast are intelligent, ambitious, connected, networked people. And we're surrounded by a lot of people whose intellect we respect deeply. For me, at least, most of these really brilliant people that I know are uh, incredibly good at collating information. They read a lot. They have a lot of conversations with other smart people. They collect all that data. They collate it into some you know, organized thought process, and then they regurgitate it at the dinner table, and it sounds really smart. Peter's really the only person I've ever known that he says things, and the data is like non-collected and collated. It's just like completely original. It's the raw source. Yeah, it's like there is no source material, and I think it makes him a, a really unique person, not only like my life, but in modern society uh, writ large. And I had gotten to know him pretty well over my six years at Palantir, and I think he saw that maybe the like six year run of really, really long weeks and, you know, emerging from my 20s into my 30s, I was kind of getting crushed. And he just kind of out of the blue asked if I'd be interested in talking to Founders Fund. Now, one of the important things to mention about the process of convincing me to leave or, or whatever that process was, is that Founders Fund is not Peter Thiel. And Peter Thiel is not Founders Fund. Founders is this incredibly eclectic group of super talented and kind of bizarre people. And I don't think it was ever about a transition to VC. Um, because as I said before, I, I really know nothing about VC. I had no interest in VC. It's about a transition to Founders Fund. And that's perhaps the more interesting part of the story. So for me, it's like finding an intellectual home with people who are incredibly different, that are incredibly open to dialogue and debate, that I found intellectually stimulating. And this goes all the way across our team. It's like, you know, there's Peter on the one hand, Brian Singerman, who's one of the best venture capitalists of the last 10 years, that's one of my partners here. There's Keith Raboy from the PayPal Mafia, that's one of my partners. Siam Bannister, who is one of the most successful angel investors. She was a seed investor in Uber. I mean, she's just this kind of very quirky, brilliant partner. And we have Michael Solana, who's the VP of brand and community here who is kind of my spirit animal like mm -hmm. I, I he's he's amazing um, on he's, twitter he's so amazing <laughs> um and we have so many interesting conversations that just kind of blow my mind on a daily or weekly basis and i think it's the team as a whole that being exposed to that in the interviewing process that i i realized that this is just where i wanted to kind of park my brain for as long as i could i think i actually remember mike tweeting something like 
founders fund where none of us agree on anything. And that was kind of a very appealing thing in a world where there's just so much consensus and conformity. And I know I've heard you talk about mimetic theory and, and obviously Peter talked about mimetic theory and how we're kind of in this hyper mimetic cycle where like everyone is regurgitating stuff at even a higher velocity. And so the hunger for original ideas, for truth and debate, it seems like the appetite for that is growing because so much of what's around us is the opposite of that. Over the next 10 years, do you think we're in a bull market for truth or do you think we're still going to be in this cycle where sort of post-truth, anti-truth with the media and society in general? Those categories are probably different enough that it's hard to like answer for any single one. I'm incredibly bearish on the media. I may be slightly more bullish on culture and society as a whole. You know, it's it's absolutely true of Founders Fund. Like we we actually agree on almost nothing, and this is kind of like the funny secret that it doesn't seem like the public understands. Like we get lumped in with, well, Peter Thiel's Founders Fund believes X Y Z, and we all just kind of laugh because we're like, I've never had a, a conversation here where everyone's just kind of like, yep. We're, we're all on the same page with Peter or with Keith or with Brian. It's like we fight all the time. And it's, uh, it's actually just kind of hilarious to sit as a fly on the wall for some of these conversations because they are so incredibly intense. But, you know, I think, I think we as a culture have had a tendency to oversimplify complex debate. And that's kind of led to where we are today, where I don't actually think that sort of disagreement is common at all. Yeah, it's people are almost allergic to disagreement in the realm of ideas. It's not even the realm of personal attacks. And I think some of that is just around the lack of specialization. If if you don't know a lot about any single thing, you are much more likely to take a very shallow interpretation of all of the things that you encounter. Totally. I just wanted to circle back uh, when you were talking about Peter Thiel and saying he's one of the only people you've ever met with truly original ideas. I absolutely see that where I am. I mean, a lot of times someone is considered intelligent because they watch more news than anyone else does. And as you say, they can regurgitate more or maybe have read a couple more books or they, you know, do more podcasts or what have you. Do you have a sense working with him or being around folks like that? Is it just something innate? Is it something they're born with? Is that something folks can work towards? There's some yes ands in there. I think that there is definitely something innate about it. I don't think it is purely random chance that a large percentage of brilliant philosophers, scientists, tech CEOs are on the autism spectrum. I think that's like a, a result of their kind of biological incapacity to be concerned about what their peer group wants them to to believe or think. And that is a common trait, I would say. So I do think it's innate. But I also think there's a lot that we can work towards as a society to being more open to engaging in dialogue, to uh, be open to the free transfer of ideas. And, you know, as a person, being around other people who think like this has kind of forced me in many ways to to open my own mind to to think like that as well. And so there is a you know environmental condition that is predisposed to to being more open to it. I've heard you mention this really interesting concept that diversification is sort of like this modern disease across a couple of different vectors. 
Uh, can you unpack that idea a little bit? I was really fascinated when I first heard it and I wanted to hear a lot more because I think it's such an interesting thing. Diversification is literally presented as a good thing unequivocally mm-hmm. in all cases in our society. So I would love to hear kind of kind of that idea. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. It, it is looking back at my childhood, even, you know, we grew up and people are talking about well-roundedness and getting liberal arts degrees and diversifying assets. And really like the, the older I've gotten, the more it has become obvious to me that diversification in many cases, not all cases, but in many cases is just lack of conviction. It's like basically saying, uh, I don't have strong feelings about anything. And so I'm going to have very mild feelings about everything uh, as an alternative. And if you, if you like had the ability to invest money in a company that you had incredibly high conviction that it was going to be worth a hundred billion dollars, would it make sense to put even $5 of your money in like an index fund? No, that would be insane. You should put every single dollar you can afford into the company that has the hundred billion dollar upside. And yet that's not what an asset manager today would tell you. They would tell you, you should have a portfolio of assets that have different risk profiles. And I think that's an important thing to do for some segments of the population, for some skill sets, for some job types, uh, diversification could be useful, but by and large as a cultural phenomenon, you, you need spiky. Spiky is really, really important. And it's a great tool for diversity as well, because spiky almost by definition comes from some of the most unexpected places, which is where you get really spiky immigrant founders and really spiky ethnically diverse founders and really spiky autism spectrum founders. And um, spiky is good and we should be encouraging spiky. Yeah, totally. I feel like growing up, especially kind of in the 80s, 90s, it was almost like gospel. It was just preached that like, yeah, you you need to like date a bunch of different people before you get married. You need to try a bunch of different sports. You need to try a bunch of different classes to find the thing that you're supposed to do. And there was almost really a push towards conformity. And I think it sort of has developed this underlying risk aversion in our society that's sort of a, a bad thing, particularly at scale. Like you said, in certain aspects of life, maybe in certain pockets of the population, it's good. But we seem to have become pretty risk averse and it's, oh, someone else will go build that company. Someone else will solve that problem. Someone else will make that big bet or take that really hard stance. Uh, And it's, yeah, it seems like it's a not good thing. If you look, for example, at the founding fathers in the 1700s, late 18th century, first of all, they all wildly disagreed with each other for the most part, but they were taking very, very bold, concentrated bets. I mean, the ultimate one being the founding of the country and sort of saying, F you to our overlords across the Atlantic uh, in Britain. So it seems like we've lost a lot of that culturally and it's it's a huge problem. It's probably a problem that almost nobody talks about. Yeah. You know, being expert in anything requires specialization. You know, there's no NBA player that dabbles in 15 other sports uh, on the same level as they do playing basketball. I mean, I think the like Malcolm Gladwell theory is like 10,000 hours or something. That's like, it's a lot of time. Like Mm -hmm. if you actually want to be truly expert at something, you have to be willing to give up all of these other things that you might be very subtly interested in or something. And so I think it is incredibly useful for people to maybe take the time as a child to play a bunch of sports so that they can figure out by the time they're in their, you know, teenage years or early adult years, what sports it is that they actually want to spend their time focusing on. And, you know, if it's clear that they're not going to be a professional athlete, maybe they should figure out what they're passionate about that they can actually be professional in. Uh, <laughs> that's, that's not being an athlete or, 
you know, a rapper or an Instagram celebrity. Yeah, for sure. To switch gears a little bit, we have kind of this era of radicalized clickbait journalism. Um, The old media models appear to be kind of falling apart. What do you think are some of the dangers to the kind of breakdown of truth in media and just being able to rely on what you read and watch and so on? Everything. I I think this is kind of the core risk to humanity right now. Uh, I think it's a threat to democracy. It's a threat to national security. It's a threat to education. This is maybe the most concerning aspect of my hope for the future right now. Do you have thoughts on how we write that ship, either from a government standpoint, from a societal standpoint, the private sector? Well, if, if you look at the 10 biggest fundraisers from the new media companies, you know, the BuzzFeeds and Breitbarts and whatever's of the world, literally billions of dollars of capital has been raised and the revenue is still like in the low hundreds of millions per year. And so I I think that part of the reason why things are so messed up is that there's this proliferation of new media and content is exploding to a level that it's never been seen before, but all of it is competing for the same eyeballs. And so they have to kind of raise the stakes to compete with each other for clicks. And so the headlines get more and more sensationalist. I don't know if you've recently like swiped left on your phone and clicked on the news app Mm -hmm. and gone through like the headlines are like laugh inducing. It is hilarious how bad these headlines are. For example, if you look at the cover of Bloomberg last week, it was like Tesla's autopilot could save lives. And then in bright red letters, like standing out on the page, but how many lives will it kill first? (laughs) I mean, it's like a a headline from a bad 1970s sci-fi movie. And this is kind of what we're stuck with. And so part of my hope for humanity in the future is that these failing businesses will just fail, like just get it over with um, so that we can be back to uh, a smaller number of companies that maybe have more history and tradition of bipartisanship and that we figure out a way of actually compensating content creators that doesn't lead to advertising as a clickbait junkie trend that, you know, drops us into idiocracy. You mentioned the billions of dollars that have been flowing into these companies, these broken business models that are generating much smaller amounts of revenue. And it almost seems like these outlets have been sort of weaponized and they're sort of being used left, right against each other for sort of this zero sum political game, but they're not viable businesses. And so it'd be awesome if we could accelerate the demise of some of these things that I think are just distorting our reality. And when you swipe left to look at your your Apple News, there's no nuance in that. It's just basically a fake news headline that you're being fed to click to keep supporting these these dying enterprises. The other thought that I had is that it does feel like it actually is really dangerous. Like you mentioned, it's it's a threat to our security, our future, because when you can't rely on the information that you're given, you can't really be a good citizen. You can't make informed decisions. You, you don't even really know how to make decisions in your own personal life based upon the information you're given. How bad do you think it is? It sounds like, it, obviously, you think it's going to be a big problem, but I think it's a bigger problem than people even think. Yeah, one very kind of, discrete example of this is that there's obviously been a lot of conversation around the 2016 Russian election meddling. And, you know, I think it's inarguable that it's probably bad that we caught uh, 
another country meddling in our election while we sit in our ivory tower pretending that we never meddled in anyone else's elections. But I think the reason why that was likely as effective as it was is because the fraudulent foreign influence Russia Today headlines looked exactly like the US news media headlines. They're like basically indistinguishable. And so because our stuff is so sensationalized, it creates this very, very small transition into the foreign powers and conspiracy theorists to throw out something that looks plausible because everything that is supposed to be super believable looks just as weird. And so this ends up being a huge national security threat because you can really say just about anything you want and people will believe it because A, their understanding of the issue at hand is probably not nearly complex enough to make a good decision. And the news media is feeding that because it's better for them. I mean, it, it's crazy. Like one of the, the scary things about this hope for humanity piece about wanting these companies to fail is that uh, Trump has been so good for for the media. I mean, they are just getting an enormous amount of, of traction. I was traveling last week and on my way from my house to the airport here in San Francisco, someone had, uh, I think it was CNN radio on, and the whole ride to the airport, the radio program was saying like, Trump has done all these illegal things, the people around him are criminals, you know, the impeachment is definitely going to happen, it's just a matter of time. And then, so I get to the airport, get on the flight, and then from the other airport to the hotel, they were listening to Fox radio. And it was like, everyone's lying. The president has done nothing illegal. He's been completely transparent. The left is trying to sabotage the presidency. Impeachment is definitely not going to happen. There's no way. Um, And these are like two supposedly quasi respectable organizations. And the truth is nowhere to be found. And I think that being able to dive down into that nuance is really important. Uh, And there's just no voices speaking into that that are popular or or present. Mm -hmm. And so I I think one of the kind of crazy realizations when you start appearing in the media, and everyone that I've talked to about this kind of basically agrees, is that the closer you are to a story that's written, the more you realize that every story is probably very poorly written. Because you can see the delta between truth. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And what's, what's actually portrayed in the media. Exactly. So it's like, if the thing that was written that I know a lot about is obviously not true, then I wonder if the other 98% of things I know nothing about that I'm reading in this exact same publication are equally untrue. Yeah. So countries like China, I mean, many of the dictatorships uh, kind of move with one voice. The power, there's usually one person or one small group. Our system is set up very differently, obviously. We need maybe not compromise, but at least cooperation from a, a majority of folks. And when you have basically a 50-50 stalemate, depending on if you listen to uh, CNN or you listen to Fox News or you read BuzzFeed or Breitbart, what kind of national security threats possibly and other challenges does that create for our country democracy is built on top of a well-informed populace and so i think the the threat that we're seeing is that we kind of have taken the lowest common approach to democracy that looks more like keeping up with the kardashians than it looks like the founding of the union and i think when that starts happening, you get all these weird incentive structures that exist within the political world that result in reality TV stars being elected president, for example. 
And I think this is the threat to democracy is that we just dumb down over time to a uh, much less nuanced vision for what our country is supposed to be and what, how we're supposed to be leaders in, in the world. And that is kind of trickling out across the entire globe right now. And, you know, that's deeply concerning. I'm not even sure which one's worse, but it almost seems like we were in this phase where the public was being dumbed down, as you said, and becoming uninformed. But now it maybe feels like we've entered this cycle where we're tremendously misinformed. Both are obviously bad. You want an informed citizenry to really make a country work. But when folks almost inhabit entirely different parallel realities, because not only when they get off of BuzzFeed or Breitbart or, or Fox or CNN, then they go on social media and they're just in their own echo chambers, reinforcing everything they agree with. And so you have a populace that's not even sharing the same reality on some level. Yeah, I, I, that's a really good point. I think there's some of that. I, I also think that presenting two different facts that are both facts but represent different sides of a delicate compromise isn't actually treated like it's a compromise anymore and so you know oftentimes you'll hear these political debates where the left will say oh the right is doing these crazy things they passed this bill that does xyz and that's inhumane and blah 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 and then the right says oh the left doesn't understand how taxes and the economy works but maybe both of those things are true and you have to reach a point where you're able to make compromises for the good of the country. And it's just really, really hard to have that open discussion with people if they're not like willing to sit down and understand that there are trade-offs. You can't have all of the things you want all the time. Yeah. Um, shifting gears a little bit again, it seems like the nature of warfare itself is changing pretty rapidly. So we've obviously been a, in a cycle of increasing technology development in some ways, in some ways, maybe not enough innovation and, and some stagnation. But as someone who doesn't know anything about military history, and I'm speaking as a complete layman, it seems to me like, you know, when I was born in the, the mid to late 80s, warfare sort of looked somewhat similar to maybe how it did in World War II. But it feels like we're entering this whole different era where warfare, you know, when I'm 50, 60, 70 years old, will look entirely different, unrecognizable from maybe how it did in the last 50 or 100 years. How do you think it's going to change in a world where AI, CV, autonomy, all these things are coming online? And what do you think the ramifications of that are? I think it's still really early and your perception is incredibly correct. We're still kind of preparing for the wars of yesterday in many ways. You know, we're fielding a trillion dollar weapons program in the F-35 right now that, as I said before, has been running for 25 years. It's a manned fifth generation fighter plane. It's unclear kind of exactly why we need it. There are all these like really sophisticated think tank arguments for the advantage that the F-35 gives us. And maybe you, there's some credibility that should be assessed there. But at the same time, it's kind of head scratching why we're putting our men and women out in harm's way when the technology exists to do it way more efficiently and for far less money than like the 94 to $122 million per aircraft that is being projected for the F-35. And, you know, we're still fielding aircraft carriers, which if you ask the average U.S. citizen how many aircraft carriers you think we have, most of them would say, you know, tens or hundreds even of these aircraft carriers. We have like 11 in service. You can count on two hands, basically. Yeah, my, my great-grandfather, who was uh, a naval test pilot, he was actually the first person in the Navy to fly a jet. 
he was he was working on those things like in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and here we are all this time later and you know we've got 11 of them yeah i mean you watch the blue angels fly overhead during fleet week in san francisco and people are like usa and it's like dude that is a 50 year old airplane (laughs) literally your grandfather could have flown that when he was in service so very very little has changed one way of looking at the changing face of of warfare with regards to AI in particular is on budgets. So Mm -hmm. the DoD budget projected 2020 is $733 billion. Um, $1 billion is being set aside for AI development. So that's one 733rd of the DoD budget. It would be kind of like you saying, you know, I make say $50,000 a year. I really, really love cars. I'm going to spend <laughs> one 733rd of my $50,000 a year on buying a car. And yeah. so you have like, you know, a little Tonka truck or something. <laughs> Th- that's basically what we're talking about inside wow. the DoD. Um, but I do think that for all the reasons that I discussed earlier, it's really important that we do something here because our adversaries who do not share our values are developing these technologies because they are more cost efficient. They don't put their soldiers in harm's way. They allow them to operate much more efficiently with uh, less manpower. And that gives them a tremendous advantage. And that is not an advantage that we should be seeding. And I know you're working on a piece on just war theory. Can you talk a little bit about the premise behind that and how it relates to kind of what we just talked about? Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in ethics of just war theory that stem back to just war theory. And this is like Augustinian thought. There's, there's a lot of theological and philosophical backbone to this, but um, there's a series of agreed upon principles like just cause, just authority, proportionality, discrimination, all of these things. And, you know, I, I think that on a principle by principle basis, it's possible to go and look at how improved technology advances each of these individual principles. So just cause is a great example. There's this question like, should we or shouldn't we have gone into Iraq? And you can make a thousand different types of arguments about brutal dictators and genocide and, you know, authoritarian governments repressing people's ability to speak freely. And you you can make those arguments, but let's just talk about the very, very simple did he or did he not have weapons of mass destruction? If we had the ability to say with absolute certainty whether or not he had weapons of mass destruction, we would have been better prepared to make a decision about the ethics of going to war in Iraq. So it is true that it would be good to have that sort of technology so that we can make these decisions more ethically and defensibly. When you look at something like just authority, how do you determine whether or not a body, whether it's a nation state, a sovereign state, or an international body has the authority to make a decision. Well, there's all sorts of technology that plays into this. Is that body elected democratically appropriately? Should we have better election technologies to ensure that there's no corruption? I think it's inarguable that technology should help us authorize the justness of the authorities that are making these decisions. You look at something like proportionality. Proportionality and discrimination you kind of talk about together. So over the course of human history, basically tech development and national security just got bigger and bigger booms, right? It was like at first we're like punching each other with our fists and then we're like stabbing each other with knives and then we're like shooting knives at each other uh, on sticks with, you know, bow and arrow. And then there are swords and it's like close one-on-one combat with another person. Uh, And then we're like, wow, this one-on-one thing, it's tough. And it leads to enormous amount of casualties. (laughs) Wouldn't it be great if we could do one to some? And then people are like, oh yeah, that's a good idea. Let's use catapults and trebuchets where like one 
person with a, a catapult can deal damage to a, a group of enemies. And then those groups got bigger and bigger. And it was like, okay, now we have cannons. Now we have guns. Now we have bombs. And now we have rockets. Now we have, and we just got bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden it was like, now we have an atomic weapon. And humanity kind of looked back at themselves in the mirror and said, whoa, this is really freaking scary. We actually have the ability to catastrophically obliterate humanity. And then the nuclear weapons holding countries came together and made decisions about how those things should be ethically used, how deterrence works, coming to an agreement about the extreme distaste of the idea of obliterating all of humanity. And then starting in like the 50s and 60s, you saw that that curve starts coming back down. So it goes from one to one to one to some to one to many to like one to all of humanity. And then it's now coming back down. Like it's all about uh, discrimination. So we have precision guided arms so that like we don't have to drop a heavy bomb on an installation. We can shoot uh, a, a Tomahawk missile through a window. And so lower collateral damage, increase precision, reduce the, the harm to innocent civilians. We are starting to ban things like chem bioweapons. All of this is kind of coming back down to where the ideal situation is that when you need to conduct military action, that only the legitimate targets are captured, detained, killed, whatever. And technology is core to that mission. Like, it's core to all of it, right? It's, it's core, core to, all to of delivering the weapon in a targeted way. It's core to determining who indeed is the appropriate target and, and who's not. And so technology kind of is, is a through line on the whole, the whole thing. It's a through line on the whole thing. Yeah. And I think that this is modern deterrence. So deterrence during the Cold War was nuclear weapons. It's this idea that if I fire a nuke or 100 nukes at you, you are going to fire a nuke or 100 nukes back at me. And mutually assured destruction was real and it was terrifying and it prevented proxy wars from escalating into Mm -hmm. these massive global conflicts. I think the modern version of deterrence is basically denial. So like punishment doesn't work anymore. No one actually believes that if Russia invades the Ukraine that we're going to nuke Moscow. And we have proof that no one actually believes that because they literally invaded the Ukraine and we didn't nuke Moscow. Um, and so deterrence by punishment doesn't work. It's a thing of the past. And so deterrence in the future has to be denial. And the question is, how do you deny this stuff from happening? And so you have Russia that's starting to expand their territorial influence, should we say, into the former Soviet states. You have occupation of Abkhazia and South Ossetia and Georgia. You have the invasion into eastern Ukraine. You have China kind of pulling similar antics in the South China Sea. And because no one believes that we're going to take real kinetic action against this, the most ethical way to prevent it is to make it too costly for Russia to do it or for China to do it. And that's things like counter uh, unmanned aerial system capabilities that prevent things like Iran from uh, blowing up Saudi oil refineries. And there's no reason that those cruise missiles and drones should have gotten through to be able to do that. It should be very, very trivial to protect airspace around critical assets. It's things like very tactical special forces capabilities that prevent these things from happening. It's very, very clear surveillance uh, mechanisms. So you have early warning on inbound attacks. And if you make it super expensive for Russia to invade former Soviet states or for China to incur into island states in the South China Sea, then they're going to stop doing it. 
because it's just no longer worth the cost. But you have to invest in building the technologies that prevent those things from happening in the same way that, for example, Israel invested a ton of money in building the Iron Dome. Like if you're Hezbollah, why would you bother shooting a bunch of rockets into Israel? Like they're just going to shoot them down. It's, it's just not worth doing. How does cyber warfare play into this? I think it was a couple years back that the Israelis were able to shut down a nuclear reactor in Iran, if I'm correct. But how does weaponizing bits instead of just atoms play into this kind of new world that we might be entering over the next 20, 50, 100 years? Yeah, it's, it's all the same. So I don't think anyone's going to confirm or deny the source of Stuxnet. But these types of attacks are a new form of warfare. Kind of one of the interesting questions around this is how do we determine whether or not it was actually an act of war? No one really understands where that line is. If you go back, I think it was 2008 was the invasion of Georgia by uh, Russian forces, quote unquote, Russian forces. And they hacked into the Georgian president's website and put pictures of Hitler on, on the website. I mean, it's just like crazy stuff. Like no one retaliated, no one did anything. So maybe that's not the line. What if they, they like hacked the White House website and sure. did some, like, I don't know. Like Does no it become one like knows. a Franz Ferdinand moment, like in World War One that triggers. Yeah, yeah. And I don't else, think anyone right? really knows no, what yeah. an active cyber war looks like. And so getting to the point where we can more accurately define those things and determine the rules for engagement around them, I think is, is really important. There's the, the famous Supreme Court, I forget which justice said it, but it's like, how do you know what pornography is? And it's like, I'll know it when I see it. Right now we're doing the same thing with cyber. It's like, how do you know what cyber war is? I don't know. Well, I guess we'll know it when we see it. We're going to jump into a couple questions that we ask all our guests. So some of this we've, I think, kind of danced around or even touched directly on. But what's a problem you're concerned about that most people aren't or a problem that you think maybe is getting too little attention in comparison to how important it is? I think my really strong conviction answer on this is nuclear regulation. We have the power to harness the atom to create energy that is zero carbon <laughs> and it's incredibly energy dense. The technology has been developed that makes it super safe and we're just sitting on it. So if you go and you look at why the Nuclear Regulatory Commission is kind of locked into light water reactors, which is the only sort of reactor that's deployed commercially in the United States, it's actually because of Admiral Rickover in the Cold War um, pushing for the nuclear regulatory uh, lineup around light water because for light water reactors, you need cold water. Uh, and it turns out that if you're building nuclear submarines in the Navy, the one asset that you have an unlimited supply of is cold water. And so we kind of locked into this regulatory regime around building light water reactors. Now, light water reactors have the unfortunate you know, secondary output of enriched plutonium and things that you have to encase in concrete and bury in the ground. And there's like all these risks for uh, meltdown, some of which have been mitigated with science, some of which maybe haven't. But there are all these other sorts of advanced reactor types that have none of these drawbacks. But you can't even get a permit to develop them or test them because the Nuclear Regulatory Commission says you have to be a light water reactor to get regulatory approval. And you say like, but we have a better reactor. And they said, oh, well, you have to follow the rules. It's for almost like you have to have a horse-drawn carriage. Well, we have a car. Well, we don't care. Yeah. I think the Gen 4, Gen 5 ones are the ones that would be coming online that would be better. But what about Gen 80, Gen 100 reactors that we get to a point that they're uh, infinitely more safe than even what we're talking about testing? We won't even get there because right. we're blocked 
kind of in this regulatory set of handcuffs that we've exactly. made for ourselves. Yeah, I mean, I was just, I was in France a few weeks ago, um, and it's amazing to me, like, they're, they're talking about this incredibly protological approach to climate change. Mm-hmm. And by protological, I mean, like, of or relating to the beginning of times. So like reversion to early humanity, yeah. where it's like, we have to reduce consumption and uh, use renewable energy sources and all these things that are just like looking backwards. Like how do we become less advanced than we are today so we consume less energy? And the crazy thing to me is that France is one of the most advanced nuclear states. Isn't 80% of their yeah, energy is coming crazy. from nuclear? Some yeah. huge percentage. And bringing online like one new nuclear power plant more than makes up for all of the you know cups that you are throwing into the litter box instead of the compost pile it's just the the impact on the environment is that significant and so it's crazy that you know we have the ability and we have the talent and the people and the know-how to make this huge impact on preventing catastrophic climate change Mm -hmm. um and yet we're focused on the dumbest possible approaches when we should just be like trying to build 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 like let's figure out the technology that's required to prevent this thing from happening that allows human abundance and flourishing rather than encouraging scarcity which is in over the course of all of humanity has led to conflict yeah Germany is kind of the counter case to France because Germany, I think, has shifted away from nuclear and now they're starting to burn dirty coal again because they can't get enough energy off of alternate sources like solar, which they obviously don't have sun all the year around. What I find so interesting about kind of the climate change debate is some of the strongest proponents of taking action on climate change are by far the most anti-nuclear energy people on the planet. And so you kind of start to ask yourself this question, well, if we have this technology that can really meaningfully help with climate change without dramatically reducing our standard of living, creating a, a situation around scarcity, which talk about instability and and threats to security, that would definitely unlock that. It's a very weird paradox that these things go hand in hand. You almost ask yourself the question, is it even about climate change or is it about more command and control over the economy you start to ask yourself those questions i think fairly when people are rejecting a perfectly legitimate solution even testing a perfectly legitimate solution forget about scaling it across the united states yeah i think the best case scenario is that fear does weird things to people and that would be that would be my bet i think that a lot of the people that are activists around climate change are good people that are well-meaning yeah and there's just a lot of fear around nuclear and whether it's merited or not is like a much longer scientific debate, but it definitely seems more solvable than most people would believe it to be. So we'll ask the opposite side of that question, which is what's a problem most people are very concerned about that you aren't, or you think maybe gets too much attention in the media and the culture. When President Trump was first elected, he started, you know, banging pots and pans talking about China, and it was really unpopular, and people were super anxious about the tariffs. And now it seems that both parties have kind of come together in talking about China as a boogeyman. And I wouldn't say that I'm not concerned about that. I definitely think there are a lot of really shady things uh, that have kind of grown out of our policy around China for the last, you know, 20 years or whatever it's been. But I think that it is incredibly dangerous to unite around single boogeymen. And the world is bigger than just the relations between the U.S. and China. And rather than trying to like set up a scapegoat for us to unite around, it would probably be more instructive if we, as a culture, 
started understanding and appreciating the values that we're trying to project and fix our own kind of domestic instability before just blaming all of our problems on someone else to take the attention off of our own dysfunction. And finally, uh, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? The best advisor in my life beyond any shadow of doubt is my wife because she knows me better than anyone. She's incredibly smart and she's not afraid to tell me what she really thinks. <laughs> and so, you know, I think that as I think about the best advice I've ever gotten, really all of these pieces of advice are directly from her. And it's things about being open-minded and not being stubborn. And m maybe this is more of a problem for me than other people, or maybe it's uh, much more common, is that I'm incredibly stubborn and I'm incredibly defensive. And it leads me down the path of making brash decisions that seem relevant to me that might not actually be real problems or relevant to other people. And so I think the whole category of ideas around spend as much time as you can looking inward at your own problems um, and try to address them to, to be a more responsible person than you do looking outwards and criticizing others. And I think this is kind of like a a fruits of the spirit reminder. It's like if we're focused on love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control in ourselves, then the the character that we're demonstrating to others is perfectly sufficient to deal with whatever problems we have. But the moment you get sucked into greed, envy, stubbornness, pride, whatever, mm -hmm. um, the lens through which you're viewing the world is just incredibly caustic and volatile. Yeah, it seems like the idea of getting your own house in order internally so that you can then venture out into the world and be more helpful, more productive is a helpful one. I think that we've sort of been in a societal, cultural cycle where people are, are externalizing all of their problems. There has been kind of, I think, a wave of people starting to look more internally. I think it comes in different forms. Maybe the secular forms are like things around meditation and then the more... Uh, faith-based forms would be a return to ancient wisdom and religion and all of that. But it's interesting because it's very easy and it's very simplistic to just start pointing at all the, the boogeymen around that are causing all the problems in the world. And if everyone's doing that and no one's looking inward, it's actually a very scary place to live. Yeah, I think one of the most interesting things that I've heard Peter talk about lately is this idea of hyper-Christianity, where you know the history of Christianity is marked by conflict and scandal and all of these really not so great things. Um, and that has caused people to draw away from the kind of spiritual practices that Christ demonstrated, like I had just said about the fruits of the spirit and things. But I think that this secular response to that religious modern reality has not been to present some new form of ethic. It's actually just to say, your goal as a human, and they use the word human a lot. I don't know if you've noticed that, but human, 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 human. Your goal as a human is to be more Christian than the Christians. So it's like mindfulness, meditation is just like prayer <laughs> at the end of the day. Totally. Uh, fasting. Yeah. And, and then fasting is just not letting your flesh rule the day, right? Exactly. And actually focusing yeah. inward. So it's just yeah. like this, this exhibit of hyper Christianity. Yeah. So like, I'm not even mad about it. It's like, yeah, it's great. Like, it, it, I, I would love for people to be competing about being better. That seems like a really good thing for us to compete on. 
I, I think there's some danger that it gets kind of out of control because it's not rooted in any foundational truth. But, you know, being told that you're validated and that you're, you're valuable and that you're important and um, your feelings matter and things like that, as squishy as they sound, is actually the message of really all of the major world religions for the last several thousand years. It's like this idea that you're validated because of your creation. Like the fact that you were created and that you're validated by the creator gives you individual human dignity. And that is the root from which all modern ethic comes from. The idea of human dignity that came out of the message of, of Christ. And I think this is like a very unnoticed thing that people just go about their day to day not thinking about. I think that's a core piece of advice that my wife is constantly pushing on me is to not forget where I came from and who I am. And instead of criticizing outward, always to start criticizing inward. I think that's an awesome place to, to end the episode. But Trey, thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. We really enjoyed the conversation and yeah, it's been a blast. Cool. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute-length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. In episode number three, we talk with James Bashera, entrepreneur, angel investor, and podcaster about the real struggles of building a company. I mean, there was there was a moment where I was just breaking down in tears in the bathroom at my wife's uh, parents' house, and and just breaking down in tears, couldn't stand up, and and just was definitely thinking, what the hell is happening? This is how will I get through this? But the whole time I, I was never thinking, I wish I wasn't in this. You can choose. To, to think about these things as, as not that you chose them to happen, but you could always sit there and imagine, what if I chose this? What, what would be the blessing within this to where I would choose this? And many of us choose to go to the gym and put your muscles through intense stress voluntarily, uh, you know, on purpose. So why not put your spirit through through stress so that uh, you could build up uh, some muscle there as well. And in episode two, we chatted with Jennifer Fearing, a top lobbyist at the California State Capitol, about the best piece of advice she ever received. A friend of mine who's a consultant told me of an adage that she used. Anytime a like, piece of information kind of comes at her and she's contemplating um, what to do with that information, she says, I always ask myself the question, is this interesting or is it actionable? Lots of stuff is interesting. <laughs> Full page ads in the paper by an opponent, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, you know, a mean tweet is interesting. Um, it's, it's what are the pros and cons of reacting to it? Um, do you, you feed that, you give it oxygen. Would anyone have seen it if you hadn't amplified it? Or is it in the context of lobbying, is this gonna cost me any votes? And is this reacting to it gonna help me? That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts and at Mr. Alex Kahn. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself.